Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It is March the 3rd, 1592, and a pleasant enough afternoon to go to the Playhouse. At the new Rose Theatre in Southwark, in the Liberty Clink, the prices to stand aren't high. There are balconies as well where you can sit, but they cost three pence, three times as expensive as standing in the pit, which is paved with cinders and ash and impacted hazelnut shells left by previous audiences. There's a new play on today, presented by the Lord Strange's men, written not by one of our London playwrights, but by a young out-of-towner who's causing something of a stir. It's called Harry the VJ. The people who've seen it are more correctly calling it Henry VI. <laughs> it deals with those events that are still in all our family histories. That terrible civil war in which the Lancastrians wore their red roses and the Yorkists their white. It's painful to recall, rather as if people in 2018 say, might watch a play about the end of the First World War. Violence sweeps across the stage in a vicious tide. The two armies roar and curse at each other, threaten, clash and murder. But suddenly the strangest thing happens. The unassuming figure of the King of England himself comes on and sits down on a molehill. He's a quiet and gentle man, taking no part in the fighting at all. He quietly tells us he longs to be a homely swain, a shepherd tending his flock. Oh, what a life were this. How sweet, how lovely. Suddenly, another man arrives from the battle, dragging the corpse of a younger man. He's very pleased with himself for having killed this soldier of the enemy's side, till he looks more closely at the face and sees that it is that of his own son. This was truly a war that split families. It's a little bit as if a Brexiter had killed a member of his family who voted Remain. <laughs> then a young man comes on with the dead body of an older man, and the equivalent happens. He is a son who has accidentally killed his own father. The air is filled with these two men's lamentations and the king's sorrow for them. All three are on the ground, a triptych of grief. They never address each other, but their voices make the sad music that momentarily silences the sounds of war. Harry the VJ, heroic and rhetorical till now, has suddenly become heartbreaking. And now we see the Duke of York also on a molehill. He stands holding a blood-stained handkerchief with a paper crown on his head. This humiliation has been inflicted on him by the Lancastrian queen, a French woman who is a little like Boadicea, as a preparation for killing him, as she has killed his youngest son, who was little more than a boy. York, too, is inconsolable. See, ruthless queen, a hapless father's tears. 
This cloth thou dipst in blood of my sweet boy, and I with tears do wash the blood away. And then she kills him too. Now another sound gently insinuates itself. One of York's three surviving sons is left alone with us, making our acquaintance with a certain civility. I have no brother. I'm like no brother. And this word love, which greybeards call divine, be resident in men like one another and not in me. I am myself alone. Why? Love forswore me in my mother's womb, and for I should not deal in her soft laws, she did conspire with nature with some bribe to shrink mine arm up like a withered shrub, to make an envious mountain in my back, to shape my legs of an unequal size, to disproportion me in every part, like to a chaos or an unlicked bare whelp that carries no impression like the dam. I've often heard my mother say I came into the world with my legs forward. The midwife wondered, and the women cried, Why, geez, you bless us, he's born with teeth. He's whispering to us next that he will stop at nothing in usurping the crown of England for himself as Richard III. He seems to be speaking on behalf of every transgressor who has their secret longings whether they be characters in the play or indeed we in the audience. The Rose Theatre, where Harry the VJ premiered so spectacularly, was finally excavated in 1989. Thanks to the filibustering of a small army of theatre practitioners, community groups and right-minded MPs, its rather scanty remains were saved from developers about to flatten the site to build an office block. In fact, as such disputes go, this was a remarkably genial affair, and it created great photo opportunities. Famous actors lay down in the path of slowly approaching tractors, to the great amusement of their drivers. <laughs> Leslie Grantham of EastEnders pleaded on behalf of Shakespearean stage history, and Dame Peggy Ashcroft presided over the theatre's skeletal remains in a great Shakespearean throne like King Canute except that she did manage to stop the waves. Shakespearean pulses quickened, the developers were thoroughly reasonable, and the modest national interest in Elizabethan theatre practice surged a little. It turned out that in its time, it had opened in 1587, the Rose, standing just outside the city limits to avoid the city fathers on the alert for disguised brothels, was only the fourth significant theatre to be built in London. It was preceded by a playhouse in Newington Butts and the Curtain, and the very first of all simply called The Theatre, as so far there was no other. Now that we have unearthed a few facts, the imagery of the Rose, its timber and thatch, its upstage balcony for onlookers within the play, the slightly strange stage which had a lateral bulge between its upstage and downstage areas, which then tapered to a point as directly as an accusing arrow at the audience ahead of it. It all made you realize 
how electric the limping approach of the future Richard III must have been. The odds and ends left in the courtyard, jewellery, rings and so on, are now in fact here in the Museum of London. Most fascinating of all, the theatre held 2,000 people, even though the courtyard in which the stage set, not just the stage but the surrounding courtyard, was only 12 metres across. No health and safety regulations there. And yet it could sustain the epic sweep of the Wars of the Roses and the intimacy of the Henry VI on his molehill and the Duke of York's agony. And for all that there is so little to see now, the rose with its singular combination of congestion and distance, those who'd paid the uh, most were banished to the furthest seats and the cheapest standing in the front in an exact opposite of modern practice, provides a muscularly enticing hint of London in the 1590s. It was, in fact, a model for all that followed. Not that Shakespeare was going to hang around here for very long. This was much more the patch of Christopher Marlowe and perhaps Thomas Kidd and Ben Jonson as well. As a 28-year-old, he'd only recently shaken himself free of the limitations of Stratford-on-Avon. His father's bankruptcy, his perhaps shotgun marriage to Anne Hathaway, their three children, and had then perhaps spent his so-called lost years learning his trade by acting in a touring company such as the itinerant Queen's Men, in terrible old war horses with suspiciously familiar titles, such as The Taming of A Shrew, The Famous Victories of Henry V, The Troublesome Reign of King John. And this was a life described by Ben Jonson as going with shoes full of gravel behind a blind jade and hamper to stalk upon boards and battleheads to an old cracked trumpet. Hasn't changed much, actually. <laughs> if so, Shakespeare may have been that unpopular company member who was always complaining about the script <laughs> and thus becoming an instinctive reviser of terrible old plays for his own purposes. In London, he saw his chance. He immediately gravitated to the theatre district of Shoreditch when he arrived, much as Italians would one day head for New York's Little Italy. And the presence of Christopher Marlowe and the young Richard Burbage and so many working playhouses must have sent his mind racing. The city was in the grip of theatre building. And since he had literally never seen a purpose-built theatre as such, as opposed to in-yards and so on, he must have been fascinated. The rows, the theatre and the rest all had very much the same design. They would, have a, they would be polygonal shape with a courtyard within them open to the sky, a stage sticking into the courtyard like a tongue. It was thus an amphitheatre with audience on three sides and a stack of balconies looking down at the stage, which was truly suspended, you might say, between heaven and hell. The roof, which was really there to keep the rain off, being known by everyone as the heavens, and the area beneath the stage reached through a trapdoor as the hell. So all plays, be they tragical, comical, tragical, comical, historical, pastoral, implicitly reflected man's position in the universe. When Shakespeare came to write Henry V years later, he has his chorus insist that since a single figure could attest in little place a million, we must on our imaginary forces work 
in the absence of scenery and a big company of actors. And this simplicity was to be Shakespeare's calling card, despite the fact that there are always gallons of pig's blood standing by to make the battle scenes more graphic, and the actors all wore clothes cast off by sympathetic noblemen. So as he became a playwright famous for his word pictures, he also with time had to spend many, many long hours with his colleagues early in the morning in practical negotiations with Edmund Tilney, master of the revels, as to what bits of furniture and flats of forest glades and so on could be approved for today's show, as well as having each new text analyzed by him for impropriety before rushing off to play what we would nowadays call a matinee. But it may well have dawned on him by now that there was a more prestigious venue for him than the Rose, and that surely was the older theater. As a gift imparting to the Rose, he seems to have premiered, after the three parts of Henry VI, that blood-bolted black sheep of the canon, Titus Andronicus. Significantly, significantly, for all their violence, all four Rose plays feature some of the most electric writing he ever did and some ravishing poetry. There is an entertaining print in existence of an actor playing Titus in an Elizabethan doublet and hose with a Roman toga over it, which should, but doesn't, settle all our current and rather wearisome arguments in advance as to whether the plays should be done in the costumes of the original period or updated to the present. Apart from its violence and unexpected lyricism, Titus also shows that Shakespeare liked a silly joke as well as he did the deeper delights of comedy, and he isn't afraid to break up his metre for it. At one point, Titus's brother squashes a fly dead on the table where they're sitting. Reproached by Titus for such an act of barbarism, he protests that it was only a fly. Titus's reply is, but what if that fly had a father and a mother? It must be the most unmetrical line Shakespeare ever wrote. And in this play and from this character, very funny. Broadening his range of jokes, he then writes the Comedy of Errors and gives it a baptism at Gray's Inn. Perhaps the main joke in the play is Dromeo Syracuse describing a very fat woman who's pursuing him as being like Ireland because of the bogs, Scotland because of her parsimony, and Spain because of the garlic on her breath, but claims he can't describe her Netherlands as Belgium out of good taste. <laughs> However, Shakespeare also puts into the mouth of Adriana, the respectable wife of one of the Antipholuses, a section of agonized sexual jealousy, as X-rated, I would say, as anything in The Winter's Tale or Othello later on. So this is quite a new kind of writing featuring the attraction of opposite emotions within the same play, and indeed in the same scene, and also of styles between one play and its immediate successor. Dromeo's riff was probably well judged for the occasion, as he was playing to a mainly male audience of lawyers, stronger perhaps on wrangling quibbles than on good taste. But he also knows that a dose of harsh reality, such as a woman's genuine suffering, can wonderfully season a comedy. Opportunistically, Shakespeare is also prompting a relationship with the Inns of Court, which will triumphantly culminate 10 years later in Twelfth Night. Already denounced, 
by a jealous colleague as an upstart crow, something by now is brewing in our new man in town. By the time the theatre beckons to him and he becomes a part of the Lord Chamberlain's men, his mind may already have been on ideas bigger than simply spotting gaps in the market and shopping around the available venues with whatever he can come up with as a writer. Perhaps it is an idea that modern theatre people embrace very easily. It's the thought of an independent, permanent company working around the year in their own venue, together with occasional regional tours. In Shakespeare's case, this would also mean invitations to grand houses. Shakespeare would act in all, would act in all probability, but also become its house, but not only dramatist. The regularity with which he would produce two plays of such multiplicity a year for the rest of his life suggests a company not unlike our Théâtre de Complicité or Cheek by Jowl, permanently occupying, let's say, a theatre such as London's Young Vic, with a group of actors always loyal but coming and going from time to time, and dependent entirely on box office receipts. At The Rose, for instance, a performance of Henry VI, Part Three grossed the grand total of three pounds, eight shillings and sixpence, but they were jubilant about it. How they would have welcomed an Arts Council grant, but without, but without today's officious assessments. Perhaps a better model is the Actors' Company of the 1970s, or dare I say it, my English Shakespeare Company in the 80s and the 90s. The theatre, meanwhile, was being hired by a man called James Burbage, the father of Richard Burbage, who would rapidly become Shakespeare's star actor, and who in fact had already played Richard III as a follow-up to Richard of Gloucester. Um, he was there for the next six years in the 1590s with a company which also included Augustine Phillips, Richard II, and Will Kemp, All the Clowns, and of course the child actors who played the women. Wide-ranging as Shakespeare's plays were, there are links of one kind or another between them. Both Love's Labour's Lost and A Midsummer Night's Dream end with a performance put on for the court by enthusiastic amateurs who win out against an unruly and contemptuous audience of young aristocrats. And they do it by embracing Shakespeare's impassioned belief that theatre can change people's hearts and minds and dissolve the barriers between the foreigners and the clerks, the lords and the carpenters, the apprentices, illiterates and poets, so that they all become held for the moment on the same intake of breath. In Burbage's theatre, Shakespeare now rolls out his great carpet of some dozen of our favorite plays over half a dozen years. <clears throat> Again, there might seem little connection between them, but in fact, they form a curious daisy chain of theme and style. Quite apart from their plays within a play, Love's Labour's Lost and The Midsummer Night's Dream are akin because they are the only two works in the entire canon for which Shakespeare made up the original story himself, rather than adapting someone else's old one. Both of these plays have an unexpected moral underpinning, as well as the glitter of their language and the knockabout of their comedy. The former, Love's Labours, has a wonderful shock ending, in which the boys fail to win their women and are instead dispatched by them to do various semi-Herculean labours for a year before asking again. This broadcasts Shakespeare's lifelong conviction that his men, though intellectually vibrant, often have too strong a streak of complacency to justify getting what they want. 
and the play ends on a comic but fully sincere question mark. A Midsummer Night's Dream, which I once described as being like a jig played by Beethoven, is actually much more than a jig. When Titania and Oberon argue about the disputed custody of their little foundling boy, they bicker like humans, although they rule the fairy world. And there's little doubt who has the moral authority. Titania paints a vivid picture of the global warming that their quarrel is causing. The cattle dying in the fields, the harvests failing. It could not be more serious or speak more directly to us. In an equally contemporary way, the shallower Oberon, in denial about all of it, interprets the quarrel only in terms of his sexual ownership of her. Love's Labours also partners Romeo and Juliet and Richard II in the sumptuousness of their lyricism, galvanic pace and high intelligence, though that might be disputed by Queen Elizabeth I, who felt that Shakespeare was making a point against her in his depiction of a monarch, Richard II, being successfully deposed. The play was revised by chance at the moment of the Earl of Essex's rebellion, and until good sense prevailed, Augustine Phillips, who played Richard, and his author could have ended up in jail for incitement. I must say that as a theatre-goer, Elizabeth had less enthusiasm or intelligence than her successor, James. The Two Gentlemen of Verona contains songs, romanticism, and a wonderful comedy dog called Crab, but also a near enough rape of the heroine by the hero. The Taming of the Shrew expands the misogyny of that by exhibiting a vicious battle between man and woman, though it does also suggest the possibility that bully and victim have a perverse mutual attraction. Much Ado About Nothing takes the same theme to a far more enjoyable level with much more sustained wit. The Merchant of Venice is a graphic picture of racial intolerance, though it was at the time seen as the first even half-sympathetic picture of a Jew from any English writer. Richard III expands the Richard of Gloucester of Henry VI into the full-blown but irresistible monster usurper. And delving further back into history, the house dramatist also offers us King John, which has a glorious death scene for the king, a narrating soliloquizer in the bastard Falconbridge, and also the devastating scene of a mother's grief over her dead son, even though the audience knows that he is not, in fact, dead. Yet. There's a superb death scene for King Henry IV as well, towards the end of Henry IV Part II. But that and Part I have such a host of other glories, including the great Sir John Falstaff, that it has always primarily held the stage as the definitive state of the nation play. All these 13 premieres in six years show that Shakespeare was, in a manner of speaking, always wearing the same hat, but at a different angle. A sculptor working away at the same stone, turning to similar models of mirth or sorrow and putting them to entirely different uses. Constance's misery, the agony of King Henry, the insinuations of Richard were whispered and slammed, appealing and defying, as they swung like the action of a tiger up the three levels of the theatre's auditorium, competing with the peddlers and the prostitutes and all the rest of it. It was thus the perfect Shakespearean space, which immediately begs the question of how the actors dealt with such a space. We may have the idea that Elizabethan and Jacobean actors were great hams and barnstormers, pre-Stanislavski as they were, but we probably confuse them with the Victorians. 
With an audience on top of them, both at the Rose and at the theater and later at the Globe, they handle Shakespeare's increasingly confident shifts from the epic to such small human detail as York's tears mixing with his bloody handkerchief, the one thinning and diluting the other like soil laundry under a tap. They understood that when someone is at an extreme, they may say something banal or off the point rather than their last word on the subject. They may meet death with a joke or an unfinished phrase, issue a serious threat offhandedly, or show great courage in spite of being a coward, or whisper a condemnation rather than yelling it. In other words, those actors, to our surprise, must from the start have known how to act in what we would recognize as a cinematic or televisual style, as well as tearing a passion to tatters. And it does remind me that Shakespeare himself was an early form of cinematographer with a superb zoom lens. He keeps moving in on someone's face and backing away to see the whole grouping, from the specific to the general, all the time. It's one of his great talents. It's also likely that these actors have never been asked to do such a thing before, because Marlowe and Kidd don't much call for it. It is, by the way, a gift that comes more easily, perhaps, to modern actors, who are trained to project, but also have often done a good deal of subtle film work before taking on these great parts in the theatre. Now, 12th of June, 1599, probably. It is the perfect show business blend of modesty and boastfulness. But pardon, gentles all, the flat, unraised spirits that have dared on this unworthy scaffold to bring forth so great an object. May we cram within this wooden O the very cask that did affright the air at Agincourt? Oh, pardon since a crooked figure may attest in little place a million. Word has got round London that this new Globe Theatre in Southwark has been built by the actors who were at the theatre, they were the Lord Chamberlain's men, and apparently they stripped all its timbers during the winter and brought them over the river to Southwark and constructed the Globe out of them. They say too that Mr Shakespeare has bought a little house next door so he doesn't have to travel too far to work. But this playhouse is bigger, so they had to use some new timbers as well, and it's all got rather a multicoloured effect. This virtuoso prank, which forms, by the way, the centre of James Shapiro's wonderful book, 1599, secured the high summer of Shakespeare's career, just as the indoor Blackfriars could be seen as its autumn and the theatre as its spring. As we watch Rosalind step out onto the empty stage in the middle of the afternoon and announce to nearly 3,000 people, perhaps with a little incredulity, so this is the Forest of Arden? <laughs> or when Viola asks her companions for her whereabouts and is told, this is Illyria, lady. Or as the prologue in Troilus and Cressida explains that in Troy there lies the scene, we see that this completely empty stage is what the playwright would now imagine every time he sat down to write. And now, a single figure turns and looks at us. We know who he is. We watched him for an hour or so as he mourned his father, met a ghost, swore revenge on his uncle, pretended to be mad as a means to do it, or perhaps to avoid doing it. Now he looks out at the thousands of us as if we were one person, and speaks likewise. 
Perhaps he takes a couple of steps towards us. Then he says something both untrue and obvious. Now, I am alone. It's a magnificent double entendre. Hamlet is alone in his story and alone in our company as well, simultaneously in Elsinore and Southwark. It's hard to speak to thousands of people at once, to speak believably, quietly sometimes and sometimes forcefully, as anyone who has acted in a Greek amphitheatre will tell you. No one has quite done it to this extent before. Perhaps Hamlet now takes another step onto the confidently thrusting forestage. He's in fact at the globe stepping into sunlight because due to a cunning piece of theatre design and performance scheduling, the sun is directly ahead of him as he comes out from under the ceiling of the main stage and he is suddenly as brightly illuminated as by a modern follow spot. We stare back at him. Is he about to come down among us and pick on us one by one for an interrogation? He starts firing questions. Is it not monstrous that an actor can summon up tears at will while he himself cannot drop a tear or take a revenging step on behalf of his dead father? Is he a coward? Who calls me villain? Breaks my pate across, plucks off my beard and blows it in the face. Tweaks me by the nose, gives me the lie in the throat as deep as to the lungs. Who does me this? Huh? This great soliloquy, which starts, oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I, is the most extroverted, the most self-punishing, and the most intimate of Hamlet's utterances. It lurches this way and that, sometimes unmetrically, sometimes like stand-up comedy without the jokes. If Elizabethan audiences were as vociferous as we suppose, how could he not have got an answer to some of these hammer-blow questions? By now, Shakespeare has changed the theatre irrevocably and we are his heirs. He can now please the groundlings and the intellectuals at the same moment with his infinitely flexible blank verse. He moves from jubilation to deep suffering in a moment, from the intimate detail of the broadest sweep likewise. He allows Fluellen to be as fluent as the king in Henry V, Hamlet to be put to shame by a gravedigger, the guileless shepherd Corin makes mincemeat of the courtly affectations of Touchstone in As You Like It. In Measure for Measure, the condemned prisoner Barnardine, with a marvellous mad dignity, completely confounds the disguised Duke of Vienna by flatly refusing to be executed at a time that suits the Duke's convenience. <laughs> now, this fantastical Duke of Dark Corners in Measure for Measure has been compared to the incoming monarch, James I. Certainly, a new contract is needed from 1603 onwards for Shakespeare with a new regime, and it is complex. James immediately renames the company the King's Men. The actors are made grooms of the chamber and they march in ceremonial processions in red velvet suits. They will now play at court every three weeks rather than every three months. Can you imagine any subsequent British monarch seeing the theatre as quite such a priority? <laughs> Old plays will be revived and new masterpieces written. But was there a queasy feeling to this? What was to be the payback? Shakespeare's own response to James was by turns accommodating and critical. James is to him generous but watchful. The Scottish king who is interested in witchcraft gets a Scottish play, Macbeth, which confirms the king's hope 
that the historical involvement of his great ancestor Banquo in Macbeth's murder of King Duncan has been transferred to the fictional Lady Macbeth. I should say that Banquo was supposed to be the founder of the Stuart dynasty and therefore James was his descendant. He even hears through the porter approval for the public disemboweling of the harmless Jesuit priest Father Edward Garnet that he had authorized. Unfortunately, when Macbeth came to play for the first time at the court, the event was somehow spoiled by the behavior of the visiting King Christian of Denmark, <clears throat> who had to be carried away during the performance insensate with drink. <laughs> Presumably through the ranks of women guests engaged in competitive vomiting from the same cause. As if in a form of retaliation, the King's men paid a return visit to Premier King Lear at Hampton Court in the squalid bacchanalia of a royal Christmas a couple of years later. And it turned out to be Shakespeare's most ferocious assault yet on privilege and bad kingship, launched at an audience sitting in ten levels of prestige between the entertainment and the towering pedestal where King James sat at the other end of the hall. Shakespeare went even further <clears throat> in Time and of Athens, a great potential work which was never performed while Shakespeare was alive, I should say because of its parodying of the grace and favour politicking of the Jacobean court. Altogether, in fact, this phase of Shakespeare's life was less to do with buildings, James obviously preferred to bring the theatre to him, but rather with court visits and grand tours. Still, without quitting the globe, the king's men finally took over the disused Dominican monastery and Blackfriars that they'd wanted so long in 1607. Now, at last, they were indoors and could work in the evenings by candlelight. Here, Jupiter could fly in from the ceiling on an eagle's back, throwing a thunderbolt in Cymbeline. There were musical interludes and pauses between scenes to trim the candles, and this from an author who well understood the flow of one scene into another. Overdressed customers strolled across the stage during the show. Actually, it's not so strange. I've seen the same thing at Chichester. Everyone made money, lots of money, but this Blackfriars sounds to me like a quiet reward for a life of hard work than any real new stimulus. And so Shakespeare very soon retired to Stratford to deal with his family and nurse his scrivener's palsy, writer's cramp to you and me, occasionally breaking silence to contribute a special Shakespearean effect for John Fletcher, the king's men's new house dramatist such as a queen's impassioned courtroom defence against a tyrannical royal husband. He was very good at those. Or some seamy gossip among the citizens outside the abbey in Henry VIII, <laughs> just as he once did with the beautiful passage in Pericles, Prince of Tyre, when Thaisa is cast into the sea, or a group of fishermen talk about the big fish eating the small ones in the sea, just as humans do by land. You can always tell who it is that's writing. And eventually... In his self-effacing way, Shakespeare slips away from us. Above his tomb in Stratford is a singularly unhelpful bust of him, which only suggests you wouldn't have wanted to cross him if you were a tenant farmer on his land. I've heard Shakespeare described as not a writer, but a landscape, part of most people's lives. Not so. For most of the world, his words must seem as irrelevant as those of some visiting statesman. We say he's universal, but really that's a figure of speech. To a large part of the world, he is as unlikely as a square meal. But in any community with a leisure or determination 
to clear a space in its midst for storytelling. Shakespeare, an ordinary man and not really an intellectual, reminds us of what matters and what doesn't. We still don't know a single one of his opinions, but we often quote from him without realizing we're doing it. And he makes us all talented. There are moments where we can feel ourselves on the brink, just on the brink of seeing what he saw as he pounded the fields to Chalcot, weaved his way along Bankside, or looked up from his desk in Stratford to see the mulberry tree he'd planted in his garden at New Place. Perhaps he is by now thinking of the life lived. Every play a winner from number one to number 37, and a transformation of all the theatres they played in in that short period, and the actors whose work they made better, and a knowledge that he had indeed attested in little place of many stages a million human states of mind. Together with Chekhov, Beckett and the Greek tragedians, Shakespeare gives no clue of what angered him personally or ever twist his logic to express his own view. And he used these similar but distinct buildings with their peculiar mixture of scale and confidentiality to provoke his audience as never before. As for all of us here, I think Shakespeare is very good for the health and not just the individual health. To read him to yourself or think about him alone is certainly one of life's enrichments. But ideally, it's only a preparation for an increasingly unlikely civic act, which in fact you've all performed this evening. You have to go out if you can, arrive somewhere at a certain time, negotiate a little with your fellow citizens, and become part of the process whereby 100, 500, 1,000 people of completely different sensibilities, experiences of life, senses of humor, become that singular organism and audience, all held on the same breath as Hamlet approaches the praying Claudius with his sword upraised, or as Malvolio presents himself to Olivia, cross-gartered and in yellow stockings, a color she abhors. On a good night, we leave the high music and the astonishing simplicities, the insinuation, protest, and reconciliation in an exhilarated state, feeling alive, hugely entertained, ready for more healthy arguments, more tolerant, and less easily deceived and maybe ready to go home and pull out a copy of your favorite play and try out a couple of speeches. As for me, you probably know what I feel by now. This is a man who's got in everywhere in my life. He's been as, as universal in me as, as white noise, <laughs> which is perhaps what Victor Hugo meant when he said of Shakespeare, he strides over proprieties. He overthrows Aristotle. He does not keep Lent. He overflows like vegetation, like germination, like light, like flame. As the great movie producer Sam Goldwyn put it, no less eloquently, fantastic. And it was all written with a feather. <laughs> Thank you.